We are in John 18. We left off at verse 12 where he says to Peter, put up thy sword into thy sheaf, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Down at verse 18, then it says, the servants and the officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. And down at verse 27, and it says, Peter then denied again, which is the third time, and immediately the cock crew. So we're, we're headed into this section in John where we're going to go through five trials. Uh, the trial with Anna, Annas, then with Caiaphas, then with Pilate, then with Herod, then back to Pilate. All of them basically illegal. All of them, there's no justice. And there's this series of five trials. So we'll look at them together. But as we do, woven into that in each gospel is Peter and his denial, what he goes through. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story. So the Bible says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is to be confirmed. So when you have four witnesses, it's something that's supposed to be there that you and I have something to learn from. It's not there so you and I can be critical of Peter. It's there so you and I can learn some of the lessons of his life of succeeding and of failing and of renewal and of growing. It's a process. It's a pilgrimage. And we watch him. You know, we can say whatever we want to say about him, but you, you figure at this point in, in the narrative, one of them has, you know, betrayed Jesus. That's Judas. And he's out somewhere in the process of committing suicide at this point in time. One of them has denied Jesus, that's Peter. One of them is with Jesus, that's John. And nine of them have just fled into the night, they're gone. So whatever we see in Peter's life of error, he's at least following him and John. He's at least in the picture. Should he have pulled out his sword? You know, uh, that may have been rash, but you give him, you got to give it to him. He pulls out his sword against insurmountable odds. It's an old fisherman and a, and a Roman cohort, you know, and it just, he does that. So he's an interesting guy for us to watch because he says things and does things that so many of us can relate to. He's one of the great humans of the scripture. You know, in the Old Testament, you have Moses, the meekest man that ever lived. But the reason he couldn't get in the promised land is because he lost temper. He lost his temper and he beat a rock with his with the staff, no doubt, almonds and flowers flying everywhere. And God wouldn't let him in. Uh, you know, you think of Job and we hear of the patience of Job, but Job never read the book. So by the time it gets to the end, he's on his friends. He's on to God. He's, you know, you just you see him go off the edge. David, who's the king of Israel, you know, the one, the house of David that Christ is from, but David, the greatest king they ever had, ends up in adultery and committing murder. Elijah, the prophet of fire, has this incredible victory on Mount Carmel and ends up running scared from Jezebel. So in all of these personalities, their humanness is there. 
And Peter, who's going to be the head of the New Testament church initially, kind of the main player in the first half of the book of Acts till Paul takes over, we see him in his humanness and in his failing. You know, he, he had left his nets, left all to follow Christ. It, you, the, there's, there's good there. But then we're brought into these things that are kind of warning us. Supposedly, it says on his tomb in the Vatican in Rome, he that thinketh that he standeth, let him take heed lest he fall. Which Paul wrote, by the way. But supposedly that's on Peter's tomb. So we, we look at this denying of Christ, the rooster crowing, and it's a process. It doesn't just happen. You know, you're not a, 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 you know, walking on the water with Jesus. You're not doing miracles. You're not, and the next day, just deny him. You don't know him. There's a process that takes place. And there's a lesson for us in all of those things, no doubt. First thing we see of Peter, Peter in chapter 13, when Jesus says that he's leaving, Peter says, why can't he says, you can't follow me now. You'll follow me afterwards. Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. And Jesus answered them, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice, three times. So we see there's a beginning here of this denial. There's a process and no doubt Peter's thinking of himself higher than he should. The, the apostles are like that. They're arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to sit in his right hand, his left hand. And then right after that, they all flee and leave. They all, you know, depart from the king and leave him there in the hands of the Romans. And Peter, this place says, look, Lord, I understand how these other guys are. And I understand why you can't count on them. But understand, I got your back. You can count on me. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus, of course, says, really? The rooster's not going to crow till you deny me three times. Maybe that's why he pulled out the sword. We don't know. You know, maybe he thought he'd make some of that right. We're not sure. But Peter certainly is at a place where he thinks more of himself than he does in one sense of the other Apostles, And Paul says those who compare themselves among themselves, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, are not wise. That's not the comparison we're to make. We're, we're not being, you're not being conformed into my image. I'm not being conformed into your image. It doesn't make any sense to compare ourselves on the horizontal. The image we're being conformed into is on the vertical, so it's not wisdom for us to compare ourselves among ourselves. We just get in trouble that way. So the first step we see is, you know, there's that self-secure, you know, reaffirming attitude. Now, the world lauds that. The world we're living in teaches courses on it. Self-esteem, you know, how to succeed, how to be confident, how to do all these things. You know, and you're a loser if you don't do that. Peter was a loser because he did do it. He thought of himself more highly than he should, and certainly were warned about that. Secondly, in the process, Peter argues with the word of God. 
In Luke's gospel, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, the denier. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And again, he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou hast denied me thrice. So Peter there, arguing with the word of God, listen, if Jesus said something, it was the same as Isaiah something, saying something, or Jeremiah, or Moses, or anywhere else in the word of God. You know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And when Jesus says here, look, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed to you that your faith doesn't fail when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. You don't argue with that. He said, now, Lord, you don't understand. I'll go to prison with you. I'll lay down my life. You can count on me. You know, just whenever we're arguing with the word of God, we're having a problem. And by the way, interestingly, he says here, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. And the you there is in the plural. So Jesus is talking to the guys and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have all y'all, all you guys, to sift you as wheat, as he does us as well. But I have prayed for thee, back to the singular, talking to Peter, I prayed to thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, that's after Pentecost, strengthen thy brethren. So secondly, whenever we argue with the word of God, we're on the wrong track. That doesn't apply to me. You know, that was it's just, you know, Spurgeon says the word of God stands. There is nothing, no addition that's unnecessary, that doesn't need no addition. It needs no omission. You don't need to add anything to it. You don't need to take anything away from it. In fact, all through the Old Testament is said, don't add to it. Don't diminish from it. Little bit. Jesus says, look out. For the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees added to the word of God. The Sadducees took away from the word of God. You and I are foolish in this world. Anytime in our personal relationship with Jesus. If we argue with the word. If we argue with the word. There's no omission. We're not missing anything. And there's no addition. That isn't in there. That should be there. It stands perfect. It stands complete. Heaven and earth is going to pass away and the word of God is going to abide forever. So when, when you and I, we can be so much like Peter, we can be arguing with the Lord. But anytime we do that, we're arguing with the word of the Lord. When we argue with the word of the Lord, it's always a losing argument. And it's gotten our feet on the wrong path because his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Peter, then we see him arguing with the word of the Lord. Then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we don't have in John, in Gethsemane, Jesus leads them there into the garden. We have in John, Jesus getting arrested in the garden. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Jesus came to the garden of Gethsemane with the apostles. 
And, and he left eight of them behind. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And they went further with him at a stone's throw so they could actually hear him. Because Peter, who, who mentors Mark, you know, lets him know that I, we heard him say, Abba, Father, only in... But then Jesus, he says, now watch with me. Stay here and watch with me for a while. The, the God-man, the, the humanness of him was asking for, headed into the darkest passage he had ever been in when he's going to sweat great drops of blood and he's going to seek God and an angel sends to strengthen him that he might continue to agonize. He comes back and he finds Mary, you know, Larry Moe and Curly sleeping. Right? They're sleeping. He says, he says, Peter, couldn't you have watched with me for one hour? You told me you would lay down your life. Couldn't you pray for one hour? How many of us say that? Lord, I'll lay down my life. I'm completely committed. And what happens if he says to us, well, really, couldn't you pray with me for one hour? Then he says in Luke, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. That the, the open door that Christ provided for us by his death on the cross leaves us with no division between us and our Father who's in heaven. And when there's prayerlessness, and the church no doubt is plagued by that across the country, my life is plagued, plagued by that. I think so often in the middle of the night, if I'm up or something, I'll slide out of bed and start to pray. And the next thing I'm thinking, oh, the car's got to get inspected this week. And yeah, the tires are going to have to be replaced. How does my mind get from heaven to inspection? You know, <laughs> isn't it interesting? You get to pray and then your mind just kind of wanders. It needs to come to him. Uh, A.W. A. Tozier said, pray until you know you're praying. Pray until you know you're being heard. And pray until you know you're going to be answered. I need to do that, not just quote them. That's to be more real in my life. But prayerlessness. If you think more of yourself than you should. If you find yourself arguing with the word of God and thinking it doesn't apply to you or whatever. It's going to lead to that prayerlessness, which is a lack in your own relationship with him. Then, it tells us Peter then wakes up. We have it in John's Gospel where we are. The soldiers are coming. And he gets up and he hacks somebody's ear off. Right? And we have a picture of him using carnal means in a spiritual war. Give him credit. I mean, he, he pulled out a sword to fight all these Romans. But... But he's doing it in such the wrong way. And how many times in the church or in our lives are we doing something spiritual the wrong way? The weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but they're powerful. They're the pulling down of strongholds, Paul says. The, the battle that we're in is spiritual. Listen, we're watching this scene with Peter and with Jesus. And Jesus said, behind the scenes, there's another entity. Behind the scenes, there's a dark force, as in our world today. And it makes it, you know, an awful lot like the book of Job, 
where we are given to see behind the scenes where there's a contest between God and Satan going back and forth a discussion. Job has no idea. And I wonder how often in our world, because we're prayerless, we don't realize, wait a minute, way more than what's on the surface is cooking here. There's some, now, you can't blame everything on the devil. And we've joked about it for years. I can't believe I ate six donuts. The devil made me do it. No, it, just, it didn't, no that's, that's not true. Okay, we do things like that. And we blame everything on the devil. No, no. And he's happy when we do that, too, by the way. It gives him more credit than he's due. But silently, behind the scenes, you look at the world we're living in. You look at what we struggle with. And this enemy would love to have us thinking more of ourselves than we should, arguing with the word of God, waning in our prayer life, using carnal means, trying to get spiritual things accomplished. You know, sometimes I, I look at the church today and, I, you know, numbers, again, we had this, if we can have a smoke machine, if we can have lasers, if we do this, if we, you know, make it this way, the ambiance, you know, and all of that is about getting crowds. You, you can go to seminary, go to Bible school, you know, to be in the ministry, then go online and shop. There's a smorgasbord of what to do on there to get big crowds. Ch- Chuck, my pastor used to say, if you want a crowd, set your church on fire. You have a crowd in no time. You know, it's, it's so funny. I think the names of some of these people, and I could name them, and I'm not because I'm a jerk, too. But I, th- I think of some of them around that put on a big show that are no longer on the stage. In 100 years, nobody's going to know their name. But I think Irenaeus and Ignatius and Tertullian and Chrysostom who had no computers, no social media, no periodicals, no radio, no apps, and their names are still foundational in church doctrine and life because of how they stood with the word of God. Peter's using the wrong weapon here. Pulls out his sword, hacks off the guy's ear, you know. And it's in front of us, you know, so that we can learn. We can be very much like that. And, and we're more inclined to be like that when we think more of ourselves than we should. You know, when we're arguing the word of God, when we're prayerless, when we're going to do something in the flesh. And we see there's a, a process coming to this denial as we look at it. And then we see him, and as he moves into this, we see him warming himself then at the enemy's fire. Evidently, he's there. He's gathered around 55-gallon drum. It's burning, you know, and it was cold. And this little maid evidently recognizes him because he's in the, in the light from the fire. She says, certainly you were with him. He moves away. She says, you were with him also because John was there, and the high priest knew John's family, knew John. And Peter just moved away. And then somewhere else, another little maid sees him, related to Malchus, the high priest, and then finally, it's going to tell us his, his own accent betrays him. But we watch him there warming himself at the enemy's fire. You know, everything else has kind of slipped. Word of God, praying, trying to accomplish things, frustrated with carnal means instead of spiritual means. And then he finds himself 
warming at the enemy's fire. And there is no warmth at the enemy's fire. Whatever the world is consoling itself with right now, whatever the world is, is proclaiming to be a comfort right now is a deception and it's a lie. John says in his first epistle, love not the world. He said, the world passeth, E-T-H, is in the process of passing away. Right now, right now, as we're here this morning, you see all of the, well, what's going to happen with the border? What's going to happen with the, the trans world? What's going to happen with the Ukraine? What's going to happen? Nothing, honey. It's all passing away. It's rusting. It's deteriorating. It's falling apart. And there's no consolation. There's nothing to warm yourself there. And when we warm ourselves at the enemy's fire, what did Peter have to do? You know, what must he have listened to? These, this, now, the, the soldiers have left. It says these are the officers, the temple guard. And they must be laughing. So, oh, yeah, he's the Messiah. Look at him over there. They're spitting on him. Oh, yeah, this hot shot from Galilee. Nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. Peter's, what's he listening to? What do we have to listen to if we go try to warm ourselves by the enemy's fire? If we go to the bar to try to warm ourselves or the party to try to warm ourselves or something that the world has tried to warm ourselves, what do we have to listen to in those circumstances about our Savior? You'll never be warmed there. I know that you're a hot shot, but what's going to happen? You'll be in the bar, and some little me is going to recognize you and say, Hey, I thought you were one of those guys. And you're going to say, Oh, no, no, you must be making a mistake. Oh, no, it's not me. I'm saying, yeah, you're one of those Bible thumpers, one of those. No, 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 no. That's my twin brother. You know, that's, uh, you know. There's going to be no consolation. Now, I would say this, too. Uh, one of the, the Puritans I read said, let him who has not warmed himself at the enemy's fire cast the first stone. You know, because it's something we can all find ourselves involved with. And then at that point comes this group that's with him. And they say then, well, surely you're one of them because your accent betrays you. You've got that Galilean slur. The Talmud and the rabbis from this period forbid Galileans to read the Bible in the synagogues because their accent was so sloppy. Sometimes people looking at him say, what are they? What did he say? You know, so Peter, he gives himself away by the way he's talking. People should recognize us by our speech, by the way. But it shouldn't be that kind of speech. And they recognize him. Aren't you? And now Peter twice has denied. It's interesting. Mark tells us after the rooster crowed twice. Only Mark. Because Peter mentored Mark. And Peter's in his mind. This is vivid. It's so vivid. And he remembers there's a crowing around midnight. Then there's the crowing 3, 4 in the morning as the sun's getting ready to come up. The rest of the Gospels say when Peter denied him, the rooster crowed. That was the morning. Peter remembers after the, the rooster crowed twice, he says, remarkably. And Peter says to the maid, nah, he says to the next one, now, nah, I don't know what you're talking about. 
To the third, they say, well, we, you're acting. You know? And it says, Peter began to curse. Now, he wasn't using profanity. That's not what it means. What it means is he pronounced anathema on himself. He said, I'll be eternally damned if I know him. That is untrue. I don't know who this guy is. I'll be damned if I know him. Because somewhere there's a rooster. Got himself stretching his wings, getting his throat ready. He's, he's only got one part to play in the whole scene. He wants to do it good. You know, Linsky, the old German grammarist, tells us that, again, Peter, when he would walk down the street in Jerusalem after the crucifixion and resurrection, he would go by and people would go, you know, that's how people are, you know. But, you know, Peter, he, for the third time now, he denies the Lord. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And we followed the path. Thinking more of ourselves than we should, that false confidence then puts us in a position, well, the word of God, this is what it really means. This is what it re- we can interpret it instead of it interpreting us. Prayerlessness begins to settle in. We become complacent. When we try to get something done, we can do it in the flesh, in carnal means, carnal ways. And finally, we find ourselves then warming ourselves at the, the enemy's fire. Because the warmth of the love of Christ is almost just a memory. We've stepped away from it. And the world has nothing to warm us with. And then we step to denial from there. Now, I don't know. I don't know. The rooster crows. Matthew and Mark tells us then that Peter went out and wept bitterly. It tells us here in John, in 27, Peter then denied again, immediately the cock crew. And and it tells us just in John's gospel, Peter went out. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of them says he wept. The two other ones said he wept bitterly. And evidently, Peter repeated that to Mark. He, He disintegrates. He falls apart. The interesting thing is that in Luke chapter 22, verse 61, it says, when the rooster crowed, Jesus turned his face and looked at Peter. We don't know if it's covered with spit, if it's beaten. He turns and he looks at Peter. And the interesting thing is he makes eye contact. And the Greek word means he looked down. It's not the normal word for look or see. He looked down into Peter. He perceived, he saw everything that he was. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. In John chapter 1, verse 42, when Andrew and John were, you know, they were disabled, John the Baptist, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. They went and spent the afternoon with Jesus. Then it says, Andrew went and got his brother, Peter. It says, we found the Messiah. And as Peter comes, Jesus looks at him and says, Simon Barjona, you know, this is your name. Your name's going to be Cephas. I'm changing your name to a rock. It says he beheld him. Same word that Luke uses. He looked down into him and he saw all that he was. And he said, you're going to be a rock, Peter. He saw the future, saw his declision, 
saw him proud, saw him arguing with the word of God. Saw him in his prayerlessness. Saw him warming himself at the enemy's fire. He saw all of that. He saw way beyond that. And now he meets that same look again. Probably a lot like the look he saw when he was sinking in the storm and the Lord reached down and took his hand and lifted him up. He's pulling him out of another storm now. And that look was not, told you so. You know, there's nothing like you, loser. There's none of that here. As Jesus looks over, he loves Peter. He sees down into him again. He sees what he's tortured with. He sees it in us. When we compromise, when we follow at a distance, when we're away from him, he, he sees it in us. He knows that in our pilgrimage, there's this process of succeeding and failing and renewal and growing. And, and, and so he writes this story four times for us. And Jesus looks down, they make eye contact. He looks down into the man again, and that look said, Peter, you're still going to be a rock when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. And Peter goes out sobbing, weeping. The wonderful thing is at this point, the sifting is over. Satan hath desired to sift you his wheat. But I pray to you that your faith doesn't fail when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. The man's been sifted. He no longer thinks he's better than everyone else. No longer arguing with the word of God. No longer prayerless. No doubt he's sobbing, asking God for forgiveness. No longer someone who will use carnal means. No longer warming himself at the enemy's fire, following at a distance. He's been sifted. He's been broken. Humility has been ingrained into his person. And he will stand for the cause of Christ. Yes, he failed here, as we do. And the bummer in failing a test is, Usually, you have to retake it. Peter retook it. In Acts chapter 4, him and John are called before the Sanhedrin, the same crew, the same group, to ask about the man that was crippled, that was healed. And it says, Peter, looking at them, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, you know, this is done in the name of Jesus. There's only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. You guys killed the Prince of Life. He goes, it's straightforward, and, and he's filled with the Spirit, and he's not failing it the second time. You and I, same thing. How desperately the world needs us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not with pride, not with prayerlessness, not with little regard for the Word of God, not finding ourselves comfortable in this present world, not using carnal means to do anything, Certainly not following the Lord Jesus at a distance. This world needs you and I to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus looked at him again, 
there was an affirmation in that. There was a look of divine love. Because the Lord knew the man's future, knew his father when he called him, knew his destiny, knew where he would go and how, what he would end up doing. He could have just let him drown if he didn't need him, instead of pulling him up out of the water. And Peter, no doubt, mourns. Most say he went to be with John for those days. Interesting, we kind of have the youngest and oldest woven together. But those were days of agony. Friday, crucifixion. Saturday, Sunday morning. I don't know what his prayer life was like. I don't know how miserable he was. But Sunday morning early, some of the women come and they say, we were at the tomb. There were angels there. And they said, he's not here, he's risen. Go tell his disciples and Peter. He must have thought, oh, my name is Mud. You know, here these angels come from the throne of God. He says, now get down there, move the stone. Let him know that he's risen. Oh, yeah. Let Peter know, too. You know, imagine God has to say this to the angels. And then we're told in Luke chapter 24, when the two men on our way to Emmaus, the Lord appears to them, they rush back to Jerusalem. They come in to tell their story and they say, yeah, we know he's risen indeed and hath appeared unto Simon. What was that meeting like? What was that meeting like? Jesus appeared to Simon. He must have hung his head. And he said, no, Simon, look. Peter, my hands, my feet. Shalom. Peace. Peace. And something came back to life into Peter. And as an old man, he would write this. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for us. He says, Bless God. Bless God. He's begotten us again unto a living hope. By the, again unto a living, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Something happened in that conversation. We'd love to have the tape. What are the, whatever, QR code or something. We'd love, we'd love to be able to listen to that. But it put life into this man who was going to be the head of the church again. And then, of course, we see him in the end of John, where Jesus is going to say, Peter, you love me, and we'll get there if the Lord tarries. Feed my sheep. Not feed my great intellects, not feed my PhDs, not feed my theological scholars. If you love me, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And then, beyond that, he says, you know, what if I, what if, you know, if, if it's my will that this man tarries till I come? And Peter says, well, you know, and, and Jesus says to him, look, Peter, when you were young, you went wherever you wanted to. But when you're old, 
you're going to stretch out your hands in another place and do something you'd rather not. Because he knows Peter will be crucified upside down and give his life as a rock. As a rock. So I look at this man, I look at his denials, I look at the, the, the process here, and I think, Lord, you know, what is there for me to learn from this, Lord? I can't just teach it on Sunday morning and have it not speaking to my own life. And I think, Lord, when I neglect prayer, because we like to think I'd never deny him. Well, when I'm neglecting prayer, and I know he's calling me to a deeper prayer life, I'm denying that he has the ability to lead and be in the center of my life. When I neglect his word, I am denying that that word alone is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When I'm given to worry, row, I know, when I'm given to worry, I'm denying that he's going to keep me, that he's the good shepherd. He's going to bring me home. When I hang with the wrong crowd, I'm denying that I have a spiritual family. It says in the Psalms that the Lord puts the solitary in flocks. That's what he's done with us. He's gathered us into one family. And when I go hang out there, I'm denying that this is my family. This is my brothers and sisters. And as I go through these lessons with Peter in so many ways, I stand back and say, Lord, I can see where I deny. He knows me. He knows I'm going to be his. If the Lord tarries... Everyone in this room will one day be one breath away from eternity, whether it's in hospice or a car wreck or in the hospital, whatever it might be, everyone here will be one breath away from eternity. Even if it's the rapture, the breath before that, you were one breath away from eternity. And then am I trusting him rather than myself? I trusting his word rather than my opinion? Then am I praying, oh Lord, here I come. Here I come. I'm trusting all this is true. I don't want to be hanging with the wrong crowd then. I want my wife and my kids and my grandkids around the bed so I can say see you in the morning. I don't want no rooster crowing when that alarm clock goes off. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray together. I encourage you to read through on your own. You know, I didn't want to just head into the trials without taking a look at this individual, Peter, that we all love because of his great humanness. Lord, we put these things before you and we thank you for your word. Lord, and no doubt something you want us to look at, something you want us to learn from Peter, something that, Lord, you would hold him up for us to see, Lord, both your sovereignty and human frailty, Lord, and that we would find encouragement for our hearts. That when you tell us nothing can separate us from the love of God, we have no desire to argue with your word, Lord. 
even when we don't know how to pray as we ought, that the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with words that are unutterable. So, Lord, give us our portion out of this, Lord. We're all going to head our different ways now this week, Lord. There's going to be those times we think more of ourselves than we should, or we're not paying attention to your word, though we know what it says. And we're making time to do everything else but pray. Lord, get in the flesh. Follow in the wrong direction. Try to console ourselves at the wrong fire. So, Lord, you've given this to us because you know us. You've written this all out for us because you know we'll be in these places at times in our lives. And yet, Lord, Peter, the rock, his name and the foundation stone of the holy city, Jerusalem. Lord, work that way in our lives, in spite of us, not because of us. We look to you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.